I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. As America prepares its presidential election on November the 3rd, we look at the life of a president who 40 years ago was called a dangerous extremist, who wanted to put nuclear weapons in space and who proposed large tax and spending cuts hoping to destroy the power of Washington. We get a uniform report of the scrubs. Why? Because I think you'd make a football player. I doubt Try it. Try it anyway. All right, if you insist. Now, wait a minute. What's your name? Kip. George Kip. Raised in the small towns of Illinois, he was the actor who changed America, helped bring down the Berlin Wall, and became a lion of the right. If you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. A movie star and Democrat, as the president of the Screen Actors Guild, he worked to root out communist influence in Hollywood. I never, as a citizen, want to see our country or become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. His speech in 1964, a time for choosing for Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater, earned him national attention as a new conservative spokesman. One side in this campaign has been telling us that the issues of this election are the maintenance of peace and prosperity. The line has been used, we've never had it so good. But I have an uncomfortable feeling that this prosperity isn't something on which we can base our hopes for the future. Listen to part one of Ronald Reagan, from Illinois to California on 10 American presidents, from Royfield Brown and the author of Reagan, American icon Ewan Morgan. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, a cast and wherever else you get your podcasts. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I am Royfield Brown, who is um, in Toronto, well, just outside Toronto, and it is just some three weeks before the American presidential election. 
Mid-Atlantic is part of the Agora Podcast Network, a podcast network of independent podcasters that includes a great podcast called Reconsider. Eric Fogg is one of the great luminaries behind that podcast, and he reached out to me a few weeks ago and said, hmm, Royfield, we're going to be doing something at Reconsider, looking at American trends before the election. You talk about American politics all the time on your show. Why don't we do something together? This is the result of that email. I hope you enjoy our lamentations, our conversations and our ruminations on the right wing of American politics and where potentially it goes in the future. Quick addendum just before we start the show. Whilst discussing the forthcoming majority minority status of America, I talk about how white America historically has co-opted peoples and said that you are now white Americans. I incorrectly call the Kardashians Iranian Americans. They're actually Armenian Americans. However, I think I still make the point that um, the Kardashians are not seen as anything other than white. Though historically coming from Armenia, that would not have been seen as this. This might be the most important chart for understanding American politics. It shows the ideology of both parties in Congress over the past few decades. Researchers looked at every politician's voting record and then gave them a score based on how extreme or moderate they were. And if you look at the past 40 years, something dramatic has happened. Both parties have moved away from the center, but Republicans in Congress have moved much further than Democrats have. That difference is even more jarring if you look at the past few presidents. Republican presidents have become more and more conservative over the past few decades, while Democrats have stayed fairly consistent. Political scientists have a name for this. They call it asymmetrical polarization. It's one of the most important trends in recent American politics, but it's also one of the hardest to talk about. And that's posing a big challenge for journalists who want to stay neutral while covering a party that's increasingly going off the rails. This is not the Republican Party that any of us recognize. This is not the Republican Party I joined 40 years ago. What happened to the Republican Party? Oh, I've been asking myself that question. It's soul-crushing for me. Well, Royfield, it's the 10th of October. We've got, what, 24, 20, yeah, 24 days to the United States election. The president seems to be on a in a drug-induced manic phase. I've been like watching the polls obsessively. I'm sure everyone who's listening to this right now is just one very taut rubber band of anxiety. You know, between when we recorded this and when it's come out, like something else crazy has probably happened. What an odd time. And I'm glad you and I get to talk about it. It is uh, very much an odd time. And we just have the feeling that everything is, is in fast forward. Um, gone are the days when um, a news story would dominate the news for a week, maybe 10 days. Right. Uh, now it's 10 minutes yeah. and it's utterly breathless. We need a break for the sake of uh, our collective, for society and for the world's yeah. um, mental health. We need a break from this constant, constant news cycle, which forever is seems to be trying to outdo itself with the, with the latest outrage. And I, I remember seeing a tweet. I mean, God, this was back in June or something. So the fact that I still remember it is how apt it is. Future historians will be asked which quarter of 2020 they specialized in for their dissertation, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, of course, I'm recording from San Mateo, where Peninsula, California, where 
right now we're not, but we've been dealing with fires all the time. You know, right now, obviously, the United States election is certainly dominating our own headspace, right? It's it's paying rent in all of our minds. My friends on social media who uh, somehow still manage, at least for me, to be a bit across the political spectrum. You know, I think I, I remember specifically when the race was looking pretty close and the uh, I forget what did the president do. I th- it was somewhere between the whole like Louis DeJoy uh, USPS thing, which we've of course now mostly forgotten, and him. Oh yeah, and and him like suggesting that he might just get Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania state legislature, to like give him their electoral votes anyway, even if he lost the state, which he probably will. There was so much anxiety that people were coming to me because I am a gun owner about how do I get a gun. How do I get ammunition? What do I do? You know, all these people that have like, they're very pro gun control kind of folks coming to me saying, well, I think I need a gun now. And that's when I knew like, okay, this is bad. Please do not get a gun. Like it cannot help you. That peak of tension seems to have eased off just a little bit. But um, I think one of the things I want to talk about today with you, if you're down, I know, I know we're going to be talking about the Republican Party as a whole, but, and maybe the conservatives in the UK if we want. But one thing I'd like love to, think about out loud with you is after November 3rd, what could happen in the United States, depending on the result of November 3rd, you know? I'm down for the conversation. Just to go back on something which you said right at the start, Mm -hmm. uh, I was going to call it a question. It was a question that you posed, at least in the end, but it started off by being more of a, an overview and a statement of facts. In terms of 2020, the article that I read was that 2020 is 1968, 2020 is 1929, mm-hmm. is, and I'm missing one. 1918, probably, the pandemic. Yes, there yeah. you go. This is such a pivot in, in so many different ways. However, I would slightly caution with the general premise of, uh, of your title about, are we seeing the end, end of conservative parties? And I will expand on my thoughts and feelings as we talk on later, sir. Mm. I think it's an interesting question to ask. I don't know if I'm coming up with the hypothesis that the Republican Party is doomed. I know less about the demographic trends of the Conservative Party. I think the Republican Party is in a pickle. I, I could dive right into one of the things I'm thinking about, which is I find myself a kindred spirit with Nate Silver. 538 covers both elections and sports, right? And mm-hmm. you think like, well, those things aren't all that related. It's like, well, if with the like with the right kind of twisted statistical mind, they're the same thing. And so I, of course, like have been following the polls obsessively. And one thing that is true as of today is that according to 538's trending, right, what they do is, you know, they build these trend lines uh, among many other things. But one thing they do is they build these trend lines based on sampling of many, many polls, and they weight them based on, you know, the demography of the polls and how reliable they are and blah, 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 blah. But their state of the game is that nationally, Biden is up by 10 points. He has 52.1% support right now to Trump's 42%, uh, which is interesting because it leaves 6% just hanging out there, probably 1% to Hawkins and one to Jorgensen and four somehow undecided. That's a very big lead. And I did a little research and it's a bigger lead than any of Obama, Bush, 
or Clinton ever enjoyed, except for 1992, because Ross Perot was in there and slurped up 18 points. Um, actually, no, sorry. No, it is a bigger lead than, than Clinton enjoyed. Um, and so it's, I think it, like if the election were held today and that and that 10 point lead held, it would be the biggest win since Reagan won re-election against Dukakis. Or was it Dukakis? I don't even remember. That's a pretty big margin. And of course, there's Mondale. all this anxiety. Reagan and Mondale. Reagan Mondale, and Mondale, thank you. Yeah, Bush ran against Dukakis. Reagan ran against Mondale. Thank you. Uh, that's that's embarrassing. Getting the Brit to educate on my own history. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I've it's just a- done a podcast on, on Reagan. So um, oh, cool. I, I'm up on my Reaganese at the moment. Awesome. So. Uh, we've got a very big lead for Mr. Biden here, and it doesn't look like there's going to be much that can really change it. Again, the whole point of the October surprise, you never see it coming, but Trump has really struggled to get more than 42% of the vote um, or of you know polls. Sorry, I don't want to say the vote. We could be heading for a landslide, which I happen to think is it's important because I think a lot of Americans are on edge. If it's close, they're going to think someone stole it or someone messed with it and you know, it didn't reflect the will of the people. And at that point, you've got all these all these other kinds of problems where Americans lose faith in their democratic institutions even more than we have already. What I wanted to do was just share my optimism that I think it's going to be a fairly decisive election and that we're not going to have those questions over whether like hanky panky has has messed with it. I, I guess I want to start to see if like you think that you see it differently. I see it very slightly differently. I think if Trump was to get 42% of the vote, yes, that's going to be decisive in terms of the Electoral College and the key battleground states. In recent American history, that is utterly a blowout. But when you consider uh, what this man has done in office, I'm going to try and be as charitable as possible. All the norms that he has shredded. Right financial probity to completely and utterly the wall that he's built has been around his own financial dealings right again let's just just try and be fair and not be partisan the fact that he is routinely trashed the advice of the american uh, security apparatus and has basically gone along with things that putin has said or even the chinese have said to the detriment of looking at foreign interference in American elections. What American president has basically said, I do not believe the security apparatus of America. Just think about that on its own. Oh yeah. So, And these are things which are incontrovertible. So I'm not being anti-Trump by saying that. He said it repeatedly. I do not care what the CIA have said or Homeland Security have said, right? I believe Putin. Right. So when you just look at those two things, before you look at the fact that he doesn't come out and disavow very clearly and strongly right wing white supremacist racists, he doesn't. Everything else then you can say about Donald Trump, there's some there's some level of nuance you can say. Right. But these these are three things incontrovertible. The fact that he still commands over 40% of the vote of Americans, I would say is actually troubling for the short to, to medium term in American history. It shows you how divisive American society has become, and it's not healthy. 
It's not healthy. This needs to be a a low 30s blowout. And then you can see that lumpen mass of Americans who are fundamentally in the mid in the middle. And from a European perspective, as I, the way that I look at American politics, they might call themselves centrist, but really they're kind of right of center, soft right of center. Sure. Maybe they're Romney Republicans. Yeah. yeah. So they believe in fiscal probity, they would say. Uh, you reduce the size of the government. But they believe in kind of soft liberal leanings. So they're not anti uh, gay marriage, et cetera, et cetera. As long as you don't come bother me with your strident uh, liberal views, they're kind of okay, right? I would say 42% of Americans still voting for somebody who has shattered the norms that he has is still dangerous. Yes. I think you're right. I think I I have lowered my expectations about what a good outcome looks like this year. You know, a, a close election would be frightening. Actually, I'm, I'm going to be recording an episode with, with Xander later today on this. So uh, those of you listening to Mid-Atlantic, uh, if you want to hear more about what I'm just about to talk about, I'm just plugging it. Reconsider um, is my, my normal show. And we're going to be talking about media technology, how it changes over time, and how it can be used to how like new emergent media technology could be used to manipulate. And the hypothesis that I'm sitting on is that we just have, we have two totally divergent versions of reality where we just don't agree on the base facts. Like we're not looking at the same set of facts and going like, I really like that versus I really don't like that. I think we're saying, well, this is what's going on. It's like, what? No, literally none of that is true. This is what's going on. And Mm. if I'm right about that being the problem, It gives me a little bit more, I guess, faith in humanity where I might think to myself, if I believed the same set of facts as this person who's really excited about Trump, maybe I would be really excited about Trump. You know, if I believed that, for example, Biden and Clinton and Obama were deeply corrupt uh, and I believe that, you know, they have made up a bunch of stuff to try to get him and they failed. They made up the Russia thing. They failed. Right. They made up a tax return thing. They failed. And, you know, the economy was doing great. Median income was, and this is true, like the median income, like, so the average, the, the like median Americans household income was uh, the highest it had ever been, even accounting for inflation, you know, right before the coronavirus. And I believed, I don't know, that, you know, all this stuff, right? And, and if that was the set of facts I was sitting there thinking about and saying, like, you know what, this has actually gone pretty well. And, you know, and I just wasn't exposed to Mattis's letter saying that the president is a you know threat to the Constitution, or like the didn't believe there was a list of those like 500 national security experts that said the president is a threat to national security and stuff like that. I might support the guy, and I think the hard part right now, the like work we gotta do, I think is less that you know because I have a lot of friends that say like, oh God, 42 percent of Americans are fascists. We're doomed, right? It's like, no, they're not fascist. Like, yes, there are, there are probably some people who are fascists, right? And But it's like, is it 42% of Americans? No. Is it 4.2? Maybe. And I, this is less daunting work to me. I think the work that we have to do is find a way to settle the long-term kind of like narrative exposure gap rather than try to convince what's 42% of 350 million, right? So like a couple hundred, you know, a hundred... Uh, 
130 million people to not be fascist, like, whew, that, that it feels like a less steep hill to climb. Again, slight, slightly disagree with you. All right. I think... Well, if, look, if we just agreed with each other, this wouldn't be a fun episode, so bring it up. Okay, all right. Here is my hot take on fascism in the United States. The amount of Americans that would identify as being fascists, probably about 4%, right? Could even be less, but it's going to be over 1%. Who would actually say, you know what, I actually am, right? There's going to be a lot of Americans who do not identify with fascism. But if you laid out the basic tenets, well, hard right, corporatist state, strong military, bellicose language used to denigrate minorities and also to project power across your borders, getting rid of democracy and using the cover of the Constitution to do it, as Mussolini did or even Hitler did. They didn't have coup d'etat in the traditional sense. They co-opted bits of the Constitution to have a national emergency, Correct. that they withered the institutions of the state, right? Correct. If you were to lay out fascism in that way, and that people who are in the majority are being oppressed by people in the, in the minority, and that around that is identitarian politics, I would say a strong 25% mm. of Americans would line up actually with fascist beliefs. They wouldn't identify them as such. Right. They would call themselves good old Americans. Right. right. So I think we have to be really careful with, with the labels that we use because they become a way for us to hit each other over the head, that you are a democratic socialist, as if to say that's anything terrible, right? But in, in America, it's used as a, an utter slur. Um, I wouldn't call those 25% of Americans actually fascist, but they definitely would sign up to a textbook definition of what fascism actually is. Mm. And the terrible thing about Trump and Trump supporters is the vast majority know that he is a pretty amoral and transactional guy. Now, that's, amoral... That's Amoral is me putting um, you know, a very emotive uh, label on it. But let's go to just a transactional. He has no core beliefs that he actually believes in other than self-preservation. And the fact of the matter is most Republican voters know this, but they turned a blind eye because they are so worried about the other lot. Right. So it doesn't matter that their guy is fundamentally a bad guy. It's what about the other lot? And that's a terrible thing. And for somebody who, unlike on your podcast, where you have to be um, in the middle, just displaying the facts, I'm avowedly left of, left of center. I am a consensualist. You know, I don't believe in uh, left of center politics to the destruction of, of all else. I want to have the broadest possible coalition with me as possible. And I think that's incredibly important. But we have to really identify that as being the key reason why Republicans can vote for somebody who is not a George W. Bush figure. Right. You can be left of center now and actually look at those as halcyon years in terms of yeah. a commander in chief 
who understood he was the president of all America, not just the red states. Donald Trump talks like he has no, he has no responsibility and no sense of governorship over half of the United States. Correct. Yeah, I, I, would, I would agree he's been explicit about that. If you are an American patriot who believes in the 50 states, the stars and the stripes, the fact that a commander in chief can so utterly turn a blind eye to half the country should be something which is worrying. But so many Republicans just go, well, you know, he's our guy. Yeah, that, that is fair. Right? What does seem to be true about many people who still support the president, that I, I speak from like anecdotal experience rather than data, because I think this is hard data to pull from polls. So I have to be a little careful in how, how certain I am. But they've deprioritized like institutions and systems that preserve democracy long term, right? And so it's less important to them that the election be as fair as possible. It is most important that they win. It is less important to them that, to your point, like the president preserve a tradition of governing for all Americans rather than just their quote unquote base. It is most important that, you know, the president do what, you know, what we like, right? And what do we do about this shift in priorities, I think, is a really good question. Because um, I think the, the almost like mythical or almost like religious love and respect for our democratic institutions as the basis of our patriotism is so important to preserving the republic long term. You know, it is so important that every American have it in their hearts such that we're going to like fight and tear and claw and yell and scream during the election. And then boom, November 3rd, who won? Okay, that guy's our president, right? Or that, sorry, that person's our president. Okay, fine, let's, let's carry on, right? And like the fact that we're not sure it's going to happen is awful and a really, really bad state for us. Win, lose, or draw in this election, will you commit here today for a peaceful transferal of power after the election? And there has been rioting in Louisville, there's been rioting in many cities across this country, red and your so-called red and blue states. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transferal of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. And, I understand that, but and, people are rioting. Do you commit uh, to making sure that there's a no, peaceful wanna, transferal of power? We want to have get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans. We'll have a very peaceful. There won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. Uh, the ballots are out of control. You know it. And you know who knows it better okay. than anybody else? The Democrats know it better than anybody else. I remember reading Mike Duncan's The Storm Before the Storm. And uh, I picked it back up recently because I was like, oh, man, there's a lot that's getting to be a little frighteningly similar about the fall of the Roman Republic with the fall of with what's going on now. And what Duncan called it was a breakdown of most myorum, which is the uh, uh, the Latin the Latin term for essentially like political tradition or like the rules of the game. And it wasn't written down anywhere. It was just how things were done. And what would happen is like one side would break things a little bit. And the other side would say, like, well, look, we can't compete. You know, we can't compete if we're the only ones following the rules. 
and you're not because like you've got you know mobs running around the streets hitting people over the head with sticks and intimidating you know intimidating our voters for the tribune and stuff like that so we have to counter or else we'll just keep losing right we can't we can't just tolerate that and so of course as soon as the agreement between in their case like the populares and the optimates broke down yeah as soon as like you kind of broke through the first time um, and had this feedback loop between these two groups, it, it accelerated and, and then literally turned into a big civil war. Now, I don't think that we're at serious risk of like any real civil war here because there's so much that's different, including the fact that we don't have military troops that are loyal to individual people. They're loyal to the, the, the nation. But, 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 but what yeah. you do have that no other, I use this in, in air quotes, advanced democracy has hmm. is self-proclaimed militias wandering around and going into flashpoints where tensions are high going across state lines and shooting people i didn't say doesn't there wouldn't happen be in canada yeah. doesn't happen in britain right. germany france italy spain holland belgium japan yeah yeah yeah, yeah. australia new zealand you know name your uh, advanced economy it doesn't happen so is America looking at a civil war circa 1861 to 1865? Almost probably not. Is America potentially looking at high levels of civil disturbance? Yes. Most probably. Or, or at least there's a high probability. Yes. And because of the amount of guns and the fact that there are these self-declared militias in just about every state, it's a potent cocktail. If you have an election which one side of America, and I'm talking about the 25%, I'm not talking about all Trump supporters right. by right. any stretch of the imagination, can turn round and hold on to some crumbs of delegitimizing the result. Right. Right. I think anyone who thinks that such a thing is really far-fetched has to have been brought back down to earth with the recent revelation from the FBI that, you know, 10 crazy white dudes were plotting to kidnap the governor of Michigan and put her on trial because Trump tweeted, liberate Michigan. You know, when you're breaking down Trump supporters, you can like draw these these hard lines. Like, yeah, there's the 25 percent that like believe that Trump winning is more important than our democratic institutions. And then, you know, and then there's just like kind of the suburban moms who like, who generally think everything like everything is actually just better and they don't see all the bad stuff about them. But you know, you can keep slicing these groups down, 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 and down, down. If you put them all on a spectrum, like you go on this long tail and you can like circle that part on the long tail of this curve and say, there are people that like have basically decided the guy is God or sent by God, that everything he says is basically the voice of God. And, you know, and they like listen to QAnon and like they somehow think that every like dumb thing that Trump says is secretly smart because he's playing 3D chess. And so it's so smart that we're not even going to try to understand what it is, but we are going to like just follow whatever he says. And so, the you know, the thing I'm worried about is he loses and he goes basically like liberate America, not liberate Michigan, but liberate America, right? Like the Democrats stole the election because of course the president's going to say that no matter the result, right? And this is something where no, I don't think any American can in good conscience sit there and say like, no, the president's going to, if the vote was fair, he's totally going to respect the results. 
he's only gonna make a fight if you know he has good reason to believe it was stolen it's like that's clearly not true right if he loses he's gonna freak out and he's gonna say it was stolen and like how many of these guys are gonna act like those 10 dudes who, who tried to plot to kidnap the governor of michigan you know for for her coronavirus lockdown policy if we have even a couple million americans who are armed who think that the election was just stolen because the president said so and that seems to be enough we're gonna have a bad time you might be moving back to the united states at the wrong time right phil (laughs) i believe in the commons the old expression that there is fundamentally the middle ground where people come and meet Mm. and they exchange ideas and they and they talk and what was important in all Western democracies uh, circa, let's say, 1945 to at least the late 1970s was the implicit commons. So if you really looked at the needle of American politics, Mm. whether it went right or left, actually in terms of policies, it didn't really go that far. You know, civil rights... Legislation started under Eisenhower, a Republican, seriously started. You could argue it was Truman and the uh, desegregating the army. But let's say in terms of affecting the average American on the street, upsetting bits of the South, the white South, it's Eisenhower. Right. Okay. And then it carries on through Johnson. And it was the Civil Rights Act was like, was this... Uh, amazingly bipartisan there was like bipartisan support and bipartisan opposition like it's it's classic exactly nixon was for it yeah all right you look at the united kingdom the national health service so socialized medicine uh for our american friends uh just the fact that everybody regardless of income uh will be seen by the state if they fall sick no one becomes bankrupt because they've got uh cancer and they can't afford their treatment etc etc that's set up by a left-wing government but it's kept on it's sustained by various right-wing governments so the actual needle of politics doesn't massively move right to left for some 30 odd years we need to reclaim that and we need to reclaim that because what trump has successfully done is to delegitimize lots of organs of state. Done a lot of it actually just through tweet, through rhetoric. And that's the reason why what you outline is so dangerous. Bear in mind that if you are a conservative and Trump is not a conservative, whatever Trump is, is not a conservative. Just like just because somebody's right of center does not mean that they're a conservative. Fascists and Nazis actually are revolutionaries, but they sit, yeah, right of center. So Trump is something else. He's not a conservative. But you have so many conservatives who believe in the Constitution. Donald Trump does not believe in the American Constitution. He doesn't. He wouldn't say the things that he says if he did. But you have so many people who see themselves as conservatives who are going along with the delegitimizing of the American electoral process. And this is highly dangerous. It's highly unusual. Mm. And again, I have to keep saying this in an advanced democracy. I'm always putting that in air quotes. I don't know people to get upset and, oh, what do you mean that my country's not advanced? But in terms of countries that have decades forward slash some of them centuries 
of democratic rule where right. parties from one stripe change go in and out of government. The United Kingdom, you know, we haven't had a revolution or a coup d'etat since the 17th century. And we've had politicians of different stripes come in and out of power. Okay. And one of the reasons why you can do that is because you have right thinking politicians of all stripes legitimizing the vote, legitimizing things like the postal service, legitimizing the very organs of state. And this for me is the most dangerous thing. It's not that Trump is saying this. This is dangerous. Don't get me wrong. Right. But there are people like Mitch McConnell who is a conservative. He's not a Trumpite. He's a conservative. You have many conservatives that actually understand potentially what this is doing to, uh, to the American state and have not said, no, Mr. President, clearly you cannot say this. Mitch McConnell has half-heartedly, I would say, said, no, whatever the result of the election is, is, is that's the result. But what he should be saying is he should be saying it all day, every day, because we cannot give fuel to the 25% of Americans who really say to hell with the Constitution, to hell with political norms, to hell with consensual politics. I just want my own way. And I think it is legitimate that the president on a losing ticket can send out teams of lawyers to a whole load of states to delegitimize postal votes and then create just about enough confusion so that within those states, if they are, have right-leaning legislators, we can get them to appoint Trump voting electors for the Electoral College. You can do all of that through the Constitution, right? right? But it's wrong. There are, there are political norms and behoves all right thinking. I mean, right leaning now, right leaning conservatives who say they believe in the Constitution to stand up very clearly and say, no, the result of the election will be the result. And as Americans, we have to abide with it. Right. Otherwise, therein lies civil disturbance and violence and murder on, on a scale which America will have not have seen since 1865. Will it be, you know, blues and greys? No, it will not be anywhere near that. However, you will not have seen this level of violence, at least since the 1920s, when there were so many anti-black riots all throughout the United States and black people, whether it was in Tulsa or Chicago, etc., were killed with impunity by right-wing militias. Right. Well, sitting here thinking, like, I don't have much to add to your point. You know, how do we fix it? Good question. Long road. Does Biden, after he invariably wins the election, uh, does he need to be a, a, an especially good leader in the United States? Yes. One thing we'll be talking about or reconsider is the emergence of journalistic standards in social media, the way that we had in other forms of news media, why that has historically mattered. If, if you don't mind me changing topics a bit, I know one question that you asked kind of in that that prompted us having this conversation was essentially like, is the Republican Party long term doomed, assuming that the United States doesn't just like catch fire and burn to the ground and our, our democratic institutions persevere, all that good stuff. But, you know, it's a very white party. 
I've got some data about this up. It's a bit of an old party. Uh, it's a male party. And the number of old white males, uh, I mean, it's a very like, you know, evangelical Protestant party. Um, and like all those things that we use to describe the demography of Republicans, like all of those are going down. One reason we know this is that Arizona used to be solidly red. It's a swing state. It, nobody bothered with Texas, right? Now, Biden probably won't win Texas, but he could. I mean, maybe. You know, the Republicans do seem to be just like doubling down on their old ways and further and further alienating, you know, non-white males. I'm looking at Pew Research, who are, I think they're the gold standard of this kind of stuff. You know, if we look at race in the United States and party affiliation, we see these massive gaps where, okay, if you're white, you're like slightly more likely to be a Republican. And if you're anything that's not white, you are not only very unlikely to be a Republican, but over time you have become less and less likely to become Republican. Women have become less likely to be a Republican. So from 94 to 2017, it dropped from 31% to 25%. Now, that uh, they're in, independents uh, are in the Eric, middle there. Eric, yeah. let, let me jump in because I'm going I'm to lose the thread otherwise. Oh, okay. I just did a really good and thought-provoking, for me anyway, interview with Jane Jun, and she's a political scientist over at the University of Chicago. Mm. And she said it's a slight myth that your average medium white woman is not a Republican in the United States. She says, yes. Republicans are more likely male than female. But she said Trump wasn't far wrong with his appeal to, in inverted commas, suburban mums, code for white, in the last two, three months. That, yes, we had the midterms where it was ostensibly women rejecting the Republican Party. But she comes up with a whole load of data as a political scientist and says mm. that uh, female, white female support for the Republican Party is still pretty strong. Not as strong as it used to be, but still pretty strong. And that right. actually goes back into looking at uh, the 1960s and actually says that in the days of Don Draper and Mad Men, that actually mm. it was white women who were solidly conservative in a way that men weren't back then. Right. So that that's one thing I've been saying fundamentally what you've been saying over and over to people and getting very different responses. Is it sustainable? Is it desirable that you have, in effect, a white party in America? Because that's what we have. Don't let Senator Tim Scott fool you and um the odd person of color in the Republican Party. Right, yes. and it's, it's like, we're not a white party. We have a black guy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's our African-American. Yeah. You know, the very fact that, you know, Trump said, said that in, in a rally tells you the Republicans are a white party. Right. I think it is to the utter detriment of politics going forward. We know there are these demographic trends in America that by 2040, 2042, whatever survey you want to believe. Yeah. But sometime soon, in the next 20 odd years, America will be a majority minority country. But, and here is the big but, that is only defined by what you see as being a minority right now. Ooh, any, any student of history will tell you that the definition of what is classed as white 
has changed in the history of the, the colonies, which then became the United States. Initially, the Irish were not seen as white. No one bar, no one would say they're not white now. When the Italians came at the end of the 19th century, initially they were not seen as white. They were not seen as black, but they were not seen as white. So there is a whole history of America embracing groups which were not seen as white. And interestingly, um, this whole majority minority thing kind of really hinges on what do you see Latinos? And in, in the mind's eye, the average white and African-American American, when you say Latinos, and let's take the state of Florida out of this, they kind of mean Mexicans. They mean Central Americans. But in Florida, that could mean Cubans. And Cubans have a very different voting pattern and do not identify uh, with the same um, socioeconomic viewpoint that let's say the typical Mexican does. Right. Right. So if you look at Latinos as being the, the largest growing non-white group, a lot of these Latinos look pretty white. Just for a case of illustration, Cameron Diaz is Latino. Cameron Diaz, in the mind's eye of the typical American, is white. Yeah. So um, this whole thing about majority-minority, right, if you turn around and you say, well, if you kind of look white, you're white. If you identify as being white, you're white. America is still going to be a majority white country for the foreseeable future. We're not mm. talking about those brown-skinned Mexicans. Right. And again, Cameron Diaz is the case in point. It's the difference between Cameron Diaz and Jennifer Lopez, just so people really identify with this. Jennifer Lopez comes wrapped up not just in brown skin, but she has the attitudes of a minority. She embraced her curves, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. These were not the norms of typical modal white America. Cameron Diaz, the clues in her surname, can identify as a Latino, but can pass for white. And culturally, she passes for white. So that's one thing. America has co-opted groups, nations, peoples, and said, ah, you're part of the median. You are you are part of what is American historically. It's going to be very hard for African Americans to ever pass as white, right? It's going to be very hard for some Native peoples and for some Latino groups. So that's one thing. That's a very done that note somewhat laboured way, but hopefully I've done that to really illustrate my point. Yeah. So you're you're making the case that. Because the definition, because who's kind of part of the majority group can shift uh, to kind of bring it full circle, you think, you know, there's at least a path that the Republicans can continue to say, look, we're the party of, you know, we are not the party of diversity. We're the party of essentially white America, uh, but welcome more people into the fold so they expand their tent, not by saying, hey, let's get more diverse, but by but by like the definition of who's white changing over time. So you have more and more people with names, names that have like little tildes on the like Nunez, right? And Rubio, exactly. like Marco Rubio is like essentially white and therefore totally welcome in the Republican Party. They can they can kind of power on that way. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. There's another interesting kind of little little coda to this. 
If you look at um, Iranian Americans and how they are perceived, um, right-wing American rhetoric is very anti-Iran ever since the revolution. Right. And in the 1960s, 70s, Arabic Americans were kind of almost seen as white. Right. Not right. quite, but they almost were. Right. And then with America lining up very strongly pro the state of Israel, it kind of slightly flipped. And then Iranians are not Arabs, but the average American doesn't make the distinction. Right. They're all right. kind of the same. They're all kind of Middle Eastern and a little bit swarthy. Right. However, swarthy. <laughs> yeah, it's a dreadfully racially coded word, but you know what I mean. Right. OK, so. Interestingly, though, somewhere like Los Angeles, I think there's like one million uh, Americans of Iranian descent. The Kardashians are of Iranian descent. Mm. I would say they are a group which can almost pass for white now. Right. They're not seen as other. Right. So you can see this happening. You know, there is no central committee on the in the Republican Party who sat down trying to work this out. Right, but of course. But, it, but it's how um, conservative parties actually think throughout the world. So going back to your central point, which is, are they going to do themselves out of existence? The answer is absolutely not. If there's one thing which has been really constant since the French Revolution in the Western world, it is that parties that see themselves as conservative mutate and change to hold on to the levers of economic power, the, of institutional power. They will do that regardless of ideology, ultimately, oh, in a way that parties of the West come with a, with a, a more fixed ideology and then find it much harder to do. Much, yes. funny, much harder to mute and mutate and change. If you are just, well, things were kind of good before, we don't want to change things too much, that is a malleable political credo that you can do a whole load of backflips and change. Right. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 2020 vision now, and we've just gotten back one of the most comprehensive polls of the entire election cycle. The Pew Research Center spoke to more than 10,000 registered voters, and they confirmed the ongoing trend towards Joe Biden. Pew has him up 10 nationally. The poll has Trump leading on just one issue. He's up one point on the economy, with Biden leading Trump on everything else. The poll also put a spotlight on how people plan to vote, and what they found suggests some real potential worries come election night. Biden has a lead of more than 40 points among those who plan to vote by mail, and he's up 15 among in-person early voters. But Trump leads by 32 points among those who will vote in person on election day. And keep in mind, most states will report their early and in-person results on election night, but only a handful of states will report their mail-in results on November 3rd, which means election night reporting will probably skew towards Trump and maybe more than a little. Then there's something else for Democrats to consider. Even if Donald Trump is defeated on election night, Mitch McConnell is probably going to win re-election. He might be relegated to minority leader in the Senate, but he can still do real damage there. Plus, other Trump-enabling Republicans like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, and Marco Rubio will still be in D.C., even if Trump is gone. Heck, Doug Collins, the Trump lapdog from Georgia, may well win a seat in the U.S. Senate. Plus, other Trump defenders and apologists like Jim Jordan, Devin Nunes, and Matt Gates aren't going anywhere either. So what kind of message do voters need to send to get these guys to act a lot less, shall we say, Trumpy? The reason, I guess the reason I'm thinking about this is it's also the case that the United States, during times of great upheaval, has also seen major shifts in party composition. So, for example... 1860, the Republicans came about for the first time because the uh, Whigs, I think, yeah, the Whigs had sort of collapsed and lost their way. Lincoln led the Republicans into existence, you know, and then we had a big war about it. Similarly, in the 1960s or 1950s, really, in the lead up to the Civil Rights Movement, the Democratic Party was heavily split in the South uh, around whether essentially whether to be like low-key racist or like really hardcore racist and uh you know the dixiecrats showed up and they actually won a bunch of electoral votes in i think the 1960 election and the uh the democrats in the south collapsed and they had to totally reimagine themselves and the republicans you know what what happened is these guys kind of like ran around each other right and it was this like very chaotic, turbulent time for each party in, as they tried to cobble together new coalitions that I think all of us who are like, you know, who weren't around for that tend to think of the parties as like fairly immutable. Oh, the Republicans, like what do they have? They have like the South and the middle part of the country and, and the Democrats have like the North and the coasts and the Democrats are the party of diversity and the Republicans are the party of, of being white and it's just always been that way. And it's been that way for a while. I mean, 60 years is a long time. What I'm sort of scratching my head about is like, I wonder if the Republicans are backed into enough of a corner or that that there's going to be a compelling reason to shift. And one of the reasons I think that or that I wonder that is it really is the case that other than Reagan, it has been decades and decades since someone actually won the election by more than 10%, like with a gap of more than of double digits. It's a it would be a clobbering 
Um, and and we had thought for a while in the 90s and 2000s, like the age of, you know, just because of much more sophisticated, you know, media technology. And I wrote about this in Wedge, right? The ability to like, to kind of micro identify groups and and target them with specific messaging, you know, just, just made the competitive landscape much more competitive, allowed, you know, space for people to go slurp up these groups and essentially keep keep the race always at least a little bit tight right like romney got blown out because he lost by five points and you know what if trump loses by 12 what if the democrats really sweep up the down ballot and end up with 53 54 seats in the senate in a year that in 2018 you know i i remember after the blue wave in 2018 a lot of journalists were saying 2020 is going to be really hard for the Democrats. Well, they could go, you know, so does a landslide, does a butt kicking change? Does it cause an existential crisis for the Republicans? Do the Democrats have an opportunity to try to like become dominant? They're doing a better job slurping up older Americans. They're winning over more Protestants. They're winning over more suburban white women. Does that cause a crisis? In 2012, the Republican Party, under Rance Priebus, wrote a document that said, we need to expand our support in minority groups, full stop. Trump ripped up that playbook, out-enthusing the Democratic side. But you've got to be careful. Yes. That is the standard, the standard narrative where actually he got less votes. But Trump supporters were more pro-Trump, the base, than Clinton supporters were pro-Clinton. Yes. Right. That, 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 that's just fact. So there's an enthusiasm gap. And I've only ever really understood the enthusiasm gap in American politics by looking at the whole gun debate, that mm. the vast, vast, vast majority of Americans believe there should be greater checks around owning guns. Yep. But there are approximately 10% of Americans who believe in no checks at all, but their enthusiasm for their point of view far outweighs their size in sheer numbers. So they shout much louder and have the NRA putting wind into their sails, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. So there's an enthusiasm gap. Now, looking at the demographic trends of voting in the United States, before FDR came to power, most black people voted, most African-Americans voted Republican. Right and still did in large numbers up until the 1960s. Yes. And it's the 1960s which then flips that and the, and they, they become the African American vote comes synonymous with the democratic vote. So th there is no divine right that people who are non-white should vote one way and people who right. are white should, should vote another. And the utter irony is, and it's one thing that in the previous report on where the Republican Party should go after 2012, they said that many African Americans are socially conservatives, as are actually uh, Latinos. Yes. So when, it com when it comes to gay marriage... Yes. It was not the African-American community that was out there front waving that flag by any stretch of the imagination. Right. So there are lots of untapped bits of support that the, uh, a new, more, less identitarian white uh, Republican Party actually has. Right. You know, they're, they're there. There are votes there waiting for them. But 
the party's been hijacked by this extreme American um, isolationist, nativist viewpoint, which puts a 1950s view of what is an American first and foremost, and has asked all Americans to sign up to it. And if you sign up to it, you can only really do it comfortably if you happen to be white. If it gets rid of that and basically says, you are American if you're born here. Uh, we believe that you are American if you sign up to small government. We believe you are American if you um, support the stars and stripes, blah, blah, blah. Regardless of the color of your skin, uh, there's a strong future for the Republican Party. Because as I yeah. said, you know, uh, many Latino voters are not, uh, by any stretch of the imagination, latte uh, drinking liberals. Right. And right. many aspects of uh, the black vote, and you look at, you know, look at it in the deep south, in places like Georgia and Mississippi, are actually culturally very conservative. Oh, yeah. I think you're, I think you're bang on. What I, I, I get accused of being an optimist, and it's true. And often that optimism doesn't pan out. You know, I happen to, for example, think like the United States is going to go through this like very painful time, but it kind of needs it. And anytime this level of chaos occurs, you can't know the outcome, right? You can't sit there and go like, okay, well, it's going to turn out fine. But um, I'd like to think it's going to turn out fine. Just so you you don't feel alone <laughs> in, in this view that you're an internal optimist, so, so am I. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the course of history does actually march towards uh, progress. Yes. It, ju it, just, it just isn't necessarily a straight path. Yeah, and, it's like the stock market, right? Exactly, exactly. And, and, and I think Trump has given us all a lesson. And I'm saying this for my right of center leaning brethren. Right. as well, is that we've taken for granted civics, the commons, and democratic norms. Yes, we have. yes precisely. And he has been such a jolt to the system. And that's the reason why I'm really kind of quite upset and shocked that so, that so many right-leaning politicians in the States have not come out and denounced Trump in the way that they actually should. The things that he's said some of the things he has said have been so anti-American and anti-democratic, but because he wraps himself up in the stars and stripes, he's got away with literally tearing up the Constitution. How could any American president who has his levers, uh, has his hands on all levers of state and power, delegitimize bits of the government that are going to uh, collate votes? Yes. This is, this is coup territory talk. It really is, right? So, oh yeah. Let's let's be. I mean, let's let's not mince words here, right? The guy is saying, okay, what do I want? I want to throw out the ballots. Uh, I, you know, I I've already just, you know, I've already decided that the the election is going to be fraudulent. Oh, what evidence do you have of that? I don't need evidence. I'm just saying it's going to be fraudulent, and I'm not going to accept the results. Why? Because I don't want to. Why? Because I know I'm going to lose. Now in his drug induced mania. Don't like it too bad. Like the guy is the guy is clearly having an episode. Not only did he go to Bill Barr and say, you know what, just throw Joe Biden in jail. But then he told the world, I went to Bill Barr and I told him just throw Joe Biden in jail. The man is completely willing to completely openly say, yeah, like, of course, I'm going to do everything I can, no matter the rules, 
to stay in power. And, you know, if that means literally throwing my political opposition who's kicking my ass in jail, so be it. The thing is, though, as political watchers or at least people who have history as our guide, we, we have to we have to understand how we got here. And it's by incremental steps. And I use the example of Hitler, not because I'm not saying that Donald Trump is Hitler, because he does. Donald Trump doesn't have a fixed ideology in the way that Hitler did. Right. Yes. Right. OK. Donald Trump did not even write the art of the deal. You know, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf. Yes. Right. So yes. Right, there, there, is, there is a difference. Right. Um, but when Hitler came to power, he didn't say, let's close down the Reichstag tomorrow. When Hitler came to power, he didn't abolish all rights for Jews the next day. It right. was incremental steps, quite quick steps. Yes. But one thing needs to follow another. You need to set the climate. Then, then you put in the legislation. Then you burn down the Reichstag. Then you have the, the crystal knack, and it goes on and on and on. You don't do all these things on day one because right. you'll have too much opposition. So as shocking as Trump saying, let's uh, imprison Joe Biden tomorrow, uh, sorry, today, we have to understand all the things which he's done to sow just about enough confusion right. in people's minds to be able to get there. It's a, yeah, it's a great point. I remember a friend saying, I just can't even remember all of the stuff, right? It's just this miasma in my mind. Like, it's like, yeah, I know Trump just does bad things all the time, but I even forgot that he did X. I forgot that he did Y. And he, it's an, it's an interesting strategy and kind of like overwhelm, you know, overwhelm everyone with all sorts of like little stuff, um, li you know, little tiny outrages that are none of which is enough to, none of which is enough to, you know, get in a, a, a truly, you know, a, a true critical mass of opposition. Um, and every time, like, you know, every time something you do something really big and bad, uh, you know, if you just leave it out there, it dominates the headlines for days and days and days and people get to clamp on it and, and, you know, and, and someone else gets to take control of the narrative. So you do something crazy that, you know, something small and crazy again, um, in order to distract from it. It's a, it's a, it is a fascinating strategy, um, that, that seems to have worked fairly well for the guy, um, Part of my optimism, part of my optimism is that I think he's he's run out of steam. I think the fact that he's getting beat so bad in the polls is a sign that that, you know, look, people have like he's 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 just trying to do more of the same thing to to win. It ain't going to work. Um, he's going to lose. Uh, I think he's going to lose by enough that, of course, he's going to say that the election was rigged, but we won't be able to do much about it. You know, and it's I, amazing that somebody who talks about elections being rigged became the president on a minority vote. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's like the irony is not lost on the guy that actually through a massive quirk, his opponent got three million more votes, yep. but he is the president and he talks about an election being rigged. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about voter suppression or gerrymandering in this, co right. in this conversation. Yeah. And that's actually what, that is the one elephant in the room. So we talk about the Republican Party, what they've successfully done in the last 10 years is to engage in voter suppression. When you look at the actual figures of people being disenfranchised, it does run into uh, millions. 
But those millions, uh, when they're divided up via the battleground states, are quite significant because I forget if it's Wisconsin. Somebody out there is going to be screaming at me now, but I'm going to say it's Wisconsin for the sake of argument. He only won that state by less than uh, by about 50,000 votes. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So if you are suppressing the vote, right, right so, and making it harder for bits of the community who you suspect are not going to vote Republican to vote, that potentially has flipped that state. Oh, yeah. And, so, and what's interesting is, is in the United States, we kind of accept like we don't like it, but we accept as sufficiently legitimate that kind of hanky panky. Right. I'm using a jocular term for uh, for something that is horrible on purpose. And it is because we kind of see it as like, well, OK, I don't like it, but uh, we'll accept the results from the state anyway. And ultimately, you need to have some some national you, you do need to have some national like voter law reform that says there are certain kinds of things that are disenfranchisement and a violation of people's fundamental rights. And you can't do them right. And once you pass that, then groups like the ACLU can use the courts to overturn this stuff. But so it's it's an easy fix if you can get enough people around it. Maybe having all three chambers will allow the Democrats to do something like that. But. That kind of stuff that's been going on for decades, we've just accepted it as kind of the state of the game. And like, well, like good on you Republicans for winning all those state elections and and having the power to draw these lines and having the power to decide where voting machines go and stuff like that. Maybe we should have won all these state elections, we being the Democrats. And they kind of accept it. It's bizarre. The more I understand how rotten American politics is on the ground, on the state ground. The more I don't understand the lethargy of the Democrats in the last 10 years in terms of outlining nationally, not locally, but nationally, what is going on. If I was a conspiracy theorist, I would be leaving in all manner of theories that the the democratic hierarchy are in bed with the Republicans and there is some kind of compact. Because Actually, if you were to look at the what the last five elections in the United States, the Democrats have won the vote share is much higher than actually what's realized on the ground. Yes. Why there isn't hasn't been a constant drumbeat and a push for statehood for DC. I'm yep. not even talking about Puerto Rico, because I understand that culturally that um, is different from the mainland of the contiguous uh, United States. But like statehood for, for DC, gerrymandering, which destroying our democracy. You look at so many states where actually you look at the statewide vote and it's Democrat, but there's always more Republicans in power because of gerrymandering. They're, they're lumping or they're cracking Democratic voting uh, cities and towns and blocks. Right. And it should not be okay. The Democratic Party should not be saying, well, it's okay because when we take back uh, the, the local state Senate, we're just going to do the same to the Republicans. No. The way that just about every other, and I'm going back to what I said at the start of our conversation, advanced democracy does is to have a national body which is which has very clear rules, and they say these are the rules how we're going to draw constituency or right. district boundaries. These are the rules, 
and and it has to be based around a locality or localities that bear something in common. So you can't automatically just go into a a big city and split it up five different ways, knowing that overwhelmingly that city, uh, that liberal city votes Democrat, and then lump it with massive uh, rural Republican voting areas. It's just other countries do this, and I'm sick and tired of American exceptionalism and stuff when it denies people the vote. Yeah. Forget it. Just have a national body that's going to draw the boundaries or at least every state body. And I think this is a slippery slope, but I'll accept it because you are the United States. Every state body has um, to interpret national rules. You can interpret them how you want, but you've got, but these are the rules. Localities should where you know, you'll say where possible because therein lies at the slippery slope. Of course. Localities are a thing. Then, and when you draw up the boundaries, because there is a census and the census uh, is how the, the boundaries then are drawn up, some other body then needs to certify these to make sure there's no hanky-panky going on. Yeah. Yeah. This isn't, I mean, yeah, to your point, like, it's not hard. Like, other countries pull it off all the time. Um, I'm actually a big fan of Ireland's uh, way of doing things, which is, like, heinously complicated, but they do all sorts of crazy stuff, like multi-seat constituencies, which is super cool, and ranked choice voting, and, like, woo, you know, just, just like, things that make me salivate as a political scientist that everyone goes like, oh, well, it's too complicated. We can never figure it out. It's like, look, the Irish figured it out. Like the Irish are wonderful people, but they're not like fundamentally smarter than everyone else in the world. We can do it. They're not special geniuses for being able to do this. It's just they did it and they got educated in it. Um, Their body that redraws the districts is super nonpartisan. It follows rules very explicitly. And it's just straightforward and clear. Everyone in Ireland trusts the result of the vote. Everyone in Ireland understands the methodology going into it well enough to say, well, I may not like the outcome, but it was fair. The way that all of our votes translated into the um, uh, the parliament, essentially, was was fair and I'm, I'm good with it. So whatever the result is, is legitimate. And if I didn't win, I'll get you next time. But there's no sense that people are constantly cheating. And we just accept that here. I don't love it. And I wonder to what extent the Democrats, you know, they kind of like tried to play Mr. Nice Guy and let's all work together in the Obama era. And it didn't work. You know, if they get a landslide, if they get all, you know, if they get the presidency in the House and the Senate and I'm not a lifelong Democrat. So I but I wonder to what extent they're going to say, look, we've got to fix this and prevent it from ever happening again. And, And are they really going to truly push for voting reform? Uh, that the states have to follow, right? In order, and they and the federal government has the right to do that. Like they have the right to pass laws that that enforce the rights and liberties of the Constitution, whether then, the states like it or not. But then you have the Supreme Court, then don't you? And then that is the other elephant in in the room when it comes to uh, this whole whole debate that there has to be a packing of the Supreme Court to know that this is actually go- going to get through because you're going to have right-leaning justices talking about straights, rights, et cetera, et cetera. I'm the English person in, in this. I'm just an interested observer, but states' rights should not be trumping, pun not intended, civil rights, individual rights in, in this regard. That is going to be the impediment here, but it needs to be overcome. It needs to be overcome. Congress and Senate need to 
put in place a plan and then it's signed off by a democratic uh, president that is going to get away with voter suppression and with gerrymandering. And for people who are listening to this, who are white and middle class, the voter suppression is as pernicious as having to vote and been waiting four to five hours to cast your vote because deliberately in red states where there are liberal uh, pockets of the population, so they suspect they're going to vote Democratic, you you do not put enough resources behind that voting station, that polling station. Right. So your average white voter in somewhere like Texas... Uh, for them to go and vote, it takes them less than 10 minutes because there's enough people manning that voting station. If you are young, so you're in a college town, or if you are a minority, it is in hours because deliberately there aren't enough polling stations. So uh, you have to go out of your community then to find them. And then when you get there, there's not enough people manning them, so you have to wait around. So the voter suppression is very clever and very pernicious. So they hope that people just go, you know what? No. Right. right. I, I just ha- I do not have five hours to take off from my workday. On a Tuesday. On a Tuesday. Exactly. Exactly. Talking about packing the court is a totally different kettle of fish. In my eternal optimism, I happen to think that it won't be necessary for something like voter reform or voting rights reform, in part because I think like, I think Americans politicize the court far more than the justices uh, have politicized themselves. And, you know, I I know we know like Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and uh, Roberts have voted against certainly what Trump wants many a time, much to his chagrin. I don't know well enough. And I wonder kind of long term, again, different, different kettle of fish, like what Pandora's box is opened by packing the court. But uh, you know, it's not up to me. So it's also going to be a bit of a, the thing that we get to do as podcasters is we get to blab however we want and sit back and wait and see. And, uh, cause, cause it's not up to us, but maybe packing the court is another conversation we can have after the election. But where we got to today is, and I kind of like how it all came together. There was no plan by the way. So for everyone listening, there was no plan, but where we got to today was, you know, we recognized that, with the state of the game right now and this very, very strong and and to Royfield's point, consistent um, leaning towards the Dem- Democratic Party that has been the United States. Right. They keep winning like in, in terms of like total votes for Congress, total votes for Senate, total votes for the president. They have won repeatedly. And that's not reflected. Um, and, and that's even again, to Royfield's point, that's even after all the voter suppression. Um you know, there's a tension going on that the Republicans keep winning. You know, they keep getting the majority of representation with a minority of support from Americans. That probably won't hold forever. That's like the nugget I think that we're walking away with is that something's got to give, um, especially given how far the American public is leaning right now away from that, given that the Republicans managed to win in 2016 with a the most uh, kind of egregiously minority candidate for president that they'd ever put up. And the destruction to the country has been substantial for it. And and how do we get the system back to one where you kind of have to cast a bit of a bigger tent in order to win? And, and how do we get a system where 
by God, the will of more people is represented rather than the will of fewer people. Mm. Uh, completely. And, and the thing is, as um, I'm no political scientist, but let's just say with my magical wand, vote, voting, the vote, this new Voting Rights Act comes in in the next four years. And also running parallel to that, because of the crushing defeat of Trump and Trumpism, that the Republican Party has this root and branch inquiry, which comes out with change, which and the Republican Party then has a, a voice and a tone which disavows right wing extremists very clearly. Right. And also the evangelical uh, wing of the Republican Party is much more tempered. You know what? The Republican Party will be fine. It will yeah. just move and morph. And it won't have to go in for voter suppression because it will right. be able to win conservative African-American uh, votes, conservative Latino votes. It will be able to win moderate uh, urban American, white American votes. The suburbs will cleave back. What politics always shows you in any healthy democracy is that whenever there is a, a realignment, there's always a political center. And then parties right. define themselves looking at one center as opposed to another. It's just that that center ground needs to move um, slightly. Right. And in terms of rhetoric, it doesn't need to move an awful lot, but the Republican Party is pushing itself further and further to this right fringe. It just needs to course correct. Right. And, you know, you look at somebody like like Nixon, of which and Nixon was vilified by people in the left. But actually, Nixon, EPA, that's Nixon. Right. Yep. Right. You know, opening Nixon, China. Yeah. Uh, Nixon voted for the Civil Rights Act. Yep. You know, so, you know, the Republican Party just needs to remember that it, it's not only a broad church, but also it's an inclusive church. Historically, it has been. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I have really uh -huh. enjoyed this. And I also, unfortunately, I have another podcast to hop on too soon that I need to go prep for. No worries, man. This has been this has been a real pleasure. Um, thank you for having me on um, to, you know, ever, to all y'all mid-Atlantic people out there. Uh, if you want to, if you want to hear Xander and me take a uh, take our crack at American politics from like trying to understand political polarization um, a little bit better. Uh, come check out Reconsider. I don't know. Maybe I'll publish this on Reconsider too. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was actually going to say, I thought this was a Reconsider. <laughs> oh, I thought it was a Mid-Atlantic. Oh boy. Let's just post it on both. Yeah, let's just post it on both. Because I actually thought I was doing on your show, which is the reason why I didn't do my normal intro. So anyway, uh, so, okay. So if you're listening to uh, this on Reconsider, this is very funny. Um, Obviously, Eric and I are pals, and we didn't realize whose show we were actually on. So that, that, that's quite funny in and of itself. But if you are listening to this on the Reconsider feed, Reconsider is a, a wonderful uh, podcast. Mid-Atlantic is a little bit different, um, as you heard me say many times. Not nearly uh, as wonderful. Oh, thank you. Um, I, speak to, I speak to people who agree with me and also disagree with me. Uh, I even did an, an interview with um, Jay Hill, who's the uh, interim 
uh, party leader of the Wexit party. So this is a party oh, wow. in Canada that wants to secede uh, Western Canada from the yeah. from Canada. And Jay Hill is hardly a wacko politician. He served in the last but one conservative government as their chief whip. So he's somebody who's very close to power, has been very close to power in Canada, and he wants Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and British Columbia to secede from Canada. So, and I do not agree with him. However, we can sit down and have a civilized conversation. And actually, I'd call him not quite a friend, but definitely somebody I could actually ha have a beer with. And that's the thing about Mid-Atlantic. We are left of center, but um, we are not, uh, there is not a whole load of vitriol um, to, to and against uh, the other side. Uh, so do we say that we're going to give you the facts and then you work, you, then you work out for yourself? No, that's reconsiders bag. But are we hating of people that come with different political stripes? Absolutely not. So come and listen to me and uh, people who I interview and the pundit team at Mid-Atlantic for mm -hmm. um, a nuanced left of center view uh, of yeah. the world. I'd, I'd, I endorse I endorse that that description. What a pleasure, Royfield. Uh, I let's let's figure out what let's figure out what we're gonna do. Maybe either like right before. Well, it's it's it is right before the election. Maybe right after the election, we'll chat. So this has been um, a reconsider and mid Atlantic mashup. We will uh, get together again to view uh, the results of the November election and what it means not only for America. American politics, but also for the world and how it views America. So um, we'll see you in approximately all three weeks time uh, for another mashup where hmm, Eric will put his thinking cap on and <laughs> mine is never taken off. All, <laughs> all right. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone. Good luck. Go vote and talk to you all soon. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.